Did you know that Alchemist Accelerator can operate a program for you? Welcome to Innovators Inside, the podcast for people working in corporate and government innovation. Brought to you by Alchemist X, the corporate services division of Alchemist Accelerator. Here you'll follow me, Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as I talk to the industry's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you don't have to go through the painful experiences that they did. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up. Today, I'm excited to welcome Michael Moreno to the show. Michael is the business development manager for VCs and startups at a little bookstore IT shop up in Seattle called Amazon Web Services. You may have heard of it. He is also a former CIA officer with an MBA from UC Berkeley. Mike co-founded a startup of his own, Vault.ae, to bring clean energy infrastructure to the Middle East. He is a prolific advisor to startups and a venture partner with NextGen. Mike, it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's really great to be here. You have taken a fascinating path to startups in the cloud. Can you give us a sense of the through line from policy advisor at the State Department to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. My my first job out of college, I think, was the ultimate startup for me, which was as a policy advisor to the Iraqi government in 2004, we were trying to rebuild the country, a lot of good intentions, and I raised my hand to go work for the U.S. government. I started out as a Defense Department civilian. I did that for about three months, and then we converted our roles over to State Department. So I was a civilian in the U.S. government for about two and a half years there in Baghdad. Learned a lot. I did a lot of sort of internal security policy work. I bounced all around the country and learned a lot about operating in austere environments with limited resources. And then I went on to grad school. I actually went to Columbia University to do international affairs masters for international security policy and left from there to go to the military academy at West Point. I trained FBI agents for about a year, Um, went back into the government after that. You know, somewhere along that timeline is when I went back and, and joined the CIA as a operations officer and did much more work around the Middle East, uh, spent a lot of time, again, operating in austere environments. I learned Arabic along the way. Um, but then at a certain point realized I wanted that to be a chapter in my life and not the entire story. My last tour was in Dubai in the UAE and saw a lot of really exciting things going on in business and technology. And it felt like the right time for me to step out. And I actually, what you don't see on my LinkedIn profile is there was another startup I did in addition to Volt. So I did a a company called Marathon, and that was focused on defense tech, focused on bringing defense technologies to our closest allies in the Middle East. And I ran that for about a year and a half, tons of lessons learned about selling to the government and the public sector there. Along the line, I also started, I co-founded with an Emirati co-founder, Volt.ae, and ran both of those for about two years. And then came back to the US, I had a, a family, we decided that was enough for us in the Middle East. And I acted as a tech scout for a big Middle Eastern public-private partnership for about a year, helped them commercialize startups that were growing in the U.S., brought them to the Middle East. At a certain point, did the trade study between working on my own, sort of as an independent operator for these folks, and then working at a, at a bigger company and fell in love with a company in San Diego called Viasat, which builds satellites. And they were looking for folks to help them with their international expansion and market intelligence. So I, I joined a, a great and quickly growing team there at Viasat, had a ton of fun, 
And then finally, after about a year and a half of doing that, came across this team at AWS where I am now. And it was the perfect blend of everything that I just described, my background in public sector, um, service, in investment, and startups. And that's how I landed where I am now at the public sector VC and startups team at AWS. What lessons did you take from that first chapter of your life? As you started looking around in Dubai and appreciating the potential of the tech industry, you mentioned the idea of service. How did that manifest as, as you shifted your career goals away from government? So the lessons that I learned from my government service, and then especially in the transition to private sector, and I talk about this every day. I, I talk to a lot of folks that are transitioning out of government. And in fact, I had this conversation earlier this morning with a military veteran who's, who's transitioning. For me, it's all about looking for your asymmetric value and where you, where it's needed most, right? So as a guy that had been working in the Middle East a lot, looking around, and I had, I had a tremendous network from my time in the Middle East, you know, almost a decade, I saw that there were a lot of companies that wanted to work in the Middle East and didn't really understand how to do it. So for example, when we started Volt and we were developing an e a smart EV charger and installing the EV infrastructure around the Middle East, there were companies like Tesla that wanted to work there, but didn't really have that on the ground exposure or experience. And so I could, and then my, my partners and I could operate as advisors, helping advise on market entry, on Middle Eastern culture. So, and this is just me, right? Like whatever it is that makes you unique and your asymmetric value, that's where I would look for the opportunities. And so when I got out, I found a lot of companies that would put me on a contract and, and help advise them on how to enter the market in the Middle East. And then conversely, there are a lot of companies in the Middle East and maybe investors that want to want exposure to Silicon Valley startups, for example. And I was able to help them and add a lot of value in bringing them to the table and having those conversations. So the, so the lesson in transition for me in terms of how I grew in the private sector was find that unique value and find the folks that, that really need it. Yeah, that's really insightful. Inventory your assets. It's almost exactly the same advice we get in, in writing workshops, write what you know. You know, you've got a unique story. You've got a unique set of perspectives that other people don't have and, and may pay you for. Yeah. And I like that term also taking inventory. Like it took me a while to understand what I was good at and what was valued in the private sector and translating those skills that I had developed, right? Like being a case officer in the CIA is a lot about building trust-based relationships and being able to assess folks in a quick way with um, little to no background. And it turns out that's really valuable in startups and really valuable in venture, for example, right? Like we're evaluating founding teams and looking people in the eye and, and building relationships with them so that we can go do crazy things together. And it just took me a while to take that inventory personally and understand this is what's really valuable. I'm not, as a mid-career professional, I wasn't going to leave the government and then go do really well at financial analysis or be a really good engineer. As much as I might love either of those two things, it's not what I had been doing. So I needed to use a little bit of my past and then leverage that into what I wanted to do in the future. I love your comment about using your CIA training to do those snapshot assessments of, of people. Can you say a little more about that? Because obviously it's a big part of my work at the Accelerator and I find it fascinating you do refine that sense over time of, of how you identify a good founding team, how you identify a person who's trustworthy, but it's, it's hard to distill that into 
advice that you can give to other people? What a great question. I will say this, intelligence agencies and the CIA, the hiring process, and you can read this all online, like you can literally go to CIA.gov and, and they write about this. They screen for applicants with a certain psychological profile and they look for people that naturally are able to do that and can make friends and can assess people in real time. But then also it is a skill set like anything else that you cultivate and nurture and develop. And I think a lot of where that comes from is just what we would call time on target, right? Just repetitions like anything else, role playing, training, going through meetings with people and understanding what their intentions are and can I trust them? And does this feel like they're telling the truth? That's the first assessment. And then down the road, you can test that in various ways. Much like when you're talking to someone with a pitch deck, it might look great. And then down the road, you go into the data room and do your due diligence. And it turns out there are some, some red flags or questions, but I just think you get enough reps of that and you start trusting your gut. Like I've heard from very successful VCs, it's all about pattern recognition, right? And what I didn't realize is as I was transitioning is that I had built up that pattern recognition, just not in the context of VCs investing or, or assessing startups. That close the loop moment is, is crucial though, because a lot of VCs, when they're talking about pattern recognition, they're talking about, oh, his name is Steve and he went to Stanford. You've got to do that, that closed loop piece where when we're teaching customer discovery, we call it training your hunch, where you go back and verify how those initial assessments turned out. Because if you don't do that, your pattern recognition doesn't improve over time. And that's, that's the critical piece. I think the really important part of what you just said to me is what is my unconscious bias and recognizing that. And am I just saying yes to this person because they're also named Mike and they're also from San Diego or because they came from a similar background? And I need to be really careful about that. Fortunately, another thing that I had a lot of exposure to in my early career was a diverse set of folks that I was working with. And when you're in that particular job, you have to be able to make friends with everyone, whether or not you have strong feelings about where they came from or what they look like or what their political beliefs are. It doesn't matter. Your job is to become close friends with them and to develop a trusting relationship. And I think that you cannot accurately or fairly assess founders or job applicants or product ideas unless you're able to do that. Put your biases aside and, and take them at face value. This is something that always blows me away about veterans and, and people who've worked in like those military adjacent environments is the rest of us talk the talk about diversity, but the military walks the walk. They put together these highly functional teams with people from any background whatsoever. It's, it's the real deal. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, again, my, my first job out of college, I showed up in Baghdad with little to no training. I literally had 10 days of training as a civilian at Fort Bliss, Texas. So, so I grew up professionally in this joint interagency environment where I was a guy that worked for the Defense Department. But that really wasn't even part of my identity. I, I just was a recent graduate out of college, and I had been doing an internship in D.C. when I raised my hand for this job. And to my left and my right were Australian Army, FBI, State Department diplomats, USAID, NGO workers, political appointees. It didn't matter. We were all there for the mission. What I love about that type of environment is as long as you're contributing 
And by the way, Iraqi military, Iraqi foreign service, and all of our other allies and coalition partners at the time, back in 2004, there were dozens of different countries represented. I would bounce around the country and I would end up in a base that was run by Ukrainians or a base that was run by Bulgarians. And I would stay there for a week and put my life in their hands as I did what I was there to do. And the most important thing is the mission and getting the job done. And so now in the private sector, I look for teams like that, that have that appreciation. It happens to be, you're right, a, a lot of veterans, that it's kind of a shortcut to that mentality. I know that that has largely been the veteran experience, but there are folks all over that have that mentality, and I really appreciate it when I see it. Oh, look, if you can tolerate working with Australians, you can tolerate working with anyone. <laughs> a lot of good times with, with Australians. Great folks. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you're working on now? Like I said, I'm on the worldwide public sector VC and startups team at AWS, and my area of focus is space and national security. Our team has other areas of focus, and public sector for AWS is a number of things like healthcare, nonprofits, education, digital governance. And for space and national security, I spend most of my time with founders advising on things like go-to-market strategy, on fundraising strategy. I help them out with access to resources inside AWS, um, finding technical experts to help them on a deep dive. And I also work with VCs. So we're called VC and startups. We don't write venture checks, but we do work with VCs as our customers, help them to optimize their portfolio, help them to meet new companies, and then finally, we work with our government customers and our government partners all over the world to help them find new technologies. A lot of that is one-to-one, me-to-a-founder meetings, but we're always looking for ways to scale that. So one of the things that we did last year is we built and ran the AWS Space Accelerator. And it's one of the most exciting things that I've done in my time in the last year and a half plus at AWS is building this accelerator because first it gets folks excited all around the world about building a space startup. And for our first run, we had over 190 applications from 44 countries. And we are about to kick off the second iteration of the Space Accelerator for 2022. And we hope to surpass that. And we're really excited about how we can continue to help the community. What are some of the challenges in building private space startups? And how can programs like yours help? I think that for space startups, and I would categorize, I would say deep tech in general, moving from a science project to a sustainable business model is hard for any deep tech company. It's not enough that the tech works. You also need the business model and you need the team to execute on it. So business model innovation and good storytelling, by the way, one of the biggest challenges I, I've seen with companies that I mentor is they have really breakthrough, exciting technology but it's a challenge to tell that story, frankly, even to people like me who don't have that deep technical expertise. And if I don't get it, there are going to be investors out there that don't, that don't get it and customers out there. So in the accelerator, for example, we help startups with their go-to-market strategy and we give plenty of opportunities to tell and refine that story. And then from the technical piece, the accelerator gives you dozens, if not more, of hours with some of the world's technical experts at AWS. So this program, it's all about building on the cloud and accelerating what you have. We like to call it the graduate course of accelerators. 
So we don't spend a lot of time on the basics of building your startup for really early stage startups. We assume that the startup has gotten to a certain level where they generally understand what their product is. They generally have a good feeling for product market fit, and now they want to accelerate their go-to-market strategy. And so we, we have that piece, and then we'll bring in the technical advisors to build out proofs of concept, to test new products, and to help you explore new solutions and missions in a highly customized way. Because at the end of the day for the accelerator, we want our startups to be massively successful, and that's what we're there for. I love what you said about the storytelling piece because I've spent my career in deep tech and it is this interface as they're building a business, it's it's getting those customer stories, getting those case studies and then refining all of that into a, a really nicely polished elevator pitch that they can drop at the drop of a hat. I love that part. It's like poetry. I think it's everything. And I learned this first from personal experience uh, in my own, in the, the defense tech startup that I mentioned we had the best technology, we had the best solution, we had the world's experts that had built this for the US government and we were bringing it to our allies in the Middle East and, and showing them that they could use this and we just failed to tell the story effectively. And I saw, and I learned this painfully through dozens of hours of pitching the, you know, the Air Force general and telling them about this technology and then seeing, oh my gosh, we just wasted three hours walking through the tech and they don't understand what the actual customer experience is or why they need this. And that was a failure on my part. I use those lessons every day uh, now as I advise startups and I've seen it from other startups that I work with. Like this technology will change the world and it's going nowhere if you can't explain it to people in a basic way. What advice and encouragement would you give to anyone thinking of applying? So the first thing I would say is just apply. It doesn't take long and there's no downside to applying. It's a form on the website and the questions we ask are probably what you would expect for an accelerator about your company, your background, what you're trying to achieve and where you are today. And then the second piece of advice I would say is think big. That's an Amazon leadership principle. Show us the art of the possible and then also a realistic way to get there. I'd love to hear about these big, amazing problems that you're trying to solve. And then let's chart a path together for how you can solve those problems. And then finally, I would say have a good story for why AWS. And even if you don't know much about the cloud yet, that's okay. But we generally would love to hear why you think AWS could help you achieve what you're trying to achieve. And another thing I would add too is if you're not sure whether or not you're a space company, that's okay. Again, just apply. There are plenty of companies out there that I think are in what I would call space adjacent markets. And don't be afraid of applying because, again, it doesn't cost you anything but time. We'd love to have a conversation about, about that with you. And by the way, even if you don't get into the accelerator, we know that you applied and we try to reach out to everyone and have a conversation with the folks that applied and see if there's any way that we can help them outside of the accelerator. Another thing that I would mention, and I always say this even outside of the context of the accelerator, is show us what the problem to be solved is that you're trying to solve and work backwards from the customer. It's always a better idea to do that than to start with your amazing technology and then go looking for a market. It's an easier conversation and frankly, I think easier to build a business around specific problems to be solved that we can then apply your solution to. When you look back on your career to date, what are you proudest of? 
for me, this is very early in my career. And I think I knew it at the time. In fact, I'm sure I knew it at the time. I used to joke that I, that I peaked it at 22 because in 2005, I was a security advisor to the Iraqi government and I took on the role of advisor for election security. And so we developed from scratch the security plan to secure and run the first democratic elections in Iraq in 2005. It was January of 2005. And say what you will about the country, a lot of really hard stuff has happened since then. But, but we started with a blank sheet of paper, a multinational group came together and planned security to secure over 8,000 polling centers. 15 million people were registered to vote in those first elections. All sorts of crazy stories. I mean, I had nightmares that it was going to totally fail. And we pulled it off. And that day, you saw the headlines. You saw Iraqis holding up their purple fingers. It was incredibly moving. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was... Like, again, it's the moment I'm, I'm most proud of because I had a, a part in that and we were able to give to help support this opportunity for a country. And it was just magical. And again, like that country has been through so much. The process is far from perfect. We can have a much longer conversation about what success looks like. And we did a lot of things that didn't turn out right, but that those elections were yeah. were a high point. And by the way, just as just for fun, I'll tell you a great story about the purple ink because this was all over the news. Yeah, I argued very strongly against the purple ink, um, <laughs> and and we had these planning meetings. Like every little thing was planned, right? Like should we allow cars on the road? Should we? Should there be a rule against people gathering? And and how do you secure a, a polling center through policies and through actual like checkpoints and stuff like that? And the, and the question was, how do we prevent people from voting twice? And how do we secure against election fraud? And so this ink idea came up. And the options were ink that you couldn't see unless it was under like a UV, like a black light, or this purple ink. And I said, this purple ink is a horrible idea because they'll be targeted. Because someone's going to dip their finger and then the bad guys will see that they have a purple finger and it's going to do horrible things. And I said that we should do this, the UV ink or something else entirely. Which is a great instinct, wanting to protect the voters. I know, right? Because security is a balance. Like, where do we find that balance? And where do we find the balance between protecting against election fraud and um, and then protecting the folks that are voting? And I was overruled. And turns out I was wrong. And I'm so happy that I was because this was the enduring symbol of those elections and a, a rallying point for so many people to proudly hold up their their purple fingers. Sometimes it's wonderful to be wrong when you are feeling paranoid about something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the lesson is, by the way, it's okay to be wrong. I, 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 I no longer yeah. am afraid of being wrong and, and it's okay to have a strong opinion and then realize, okay, I have a lot to learn from this. The security spectrum is a really great lens, though. I talk a lot about risk management, about venture as risk management, and about running startups as a process of identifying and then retiring risks. And and that's really just the flip side of security. It's it's how much risk are you comfortable with? How much risk are you taking on? And what can you do to mitigate it? Yeah, I totally agree. And right, it's a spectrum at different points in your life or different points in your portfolio. You have more or less risk tolerance and once you once you decide that you're going to make an investment, then the question is, how do I minimize, how do I mitigate the risk? And what can I do 
leading up to, during, and then after that investment or that event to reduce the risk. And it's a really key insight that people's risk tolerance, their risk profile changes over time. You know, it's certainly the case that when you've got little kids, you want a house with a a roof with no holes in it and a, a good school system. The good news is your kids grow up and and leave school and and your risk profile increases again. That's a key insight for us working in corporate innovation because folks might be working at a big company because they're sending remittances back to their families, but they may be truly entrepreneurial people. So it's helpful to always bear that in mind. Again, this is a conversation that I had this morning with someone about whether they should join a startup or whether they should join a big corporation. And because folks want that excitement and the opportunity to be entrepreneurial, but it's sometimes a tough pill to swallow to endure that risk that comes along with early stage startups. So you have a few choices, right? You look for the later stage startups where they've reduced that risk considerably, you know, the series B, C and beyond startups. Um, But there's still risk there. I, I have friends who are series B founders that still have days when they're not sure they're going to make payroll or you get the big corporation that has that safety net, but maybe not the opportunity to be entrepreneurial. So what I say, like, I feel very lucky that I ended up in the best of both worlds. I, I can work with founders and I, I can build new things and be entrepreneurial within my company. But also we have the significant resources, the platform, the, the world stage to make an impact from. And so different points in your life, you're looking for different things. When I got out of the government, I was done with that safety net. I wanted to take a risk and I dove headfirst into that pool. And it turns out there wasn't a lot of water in that pool. (laughs) And and I learned those lessons, but I learned so much that's, that's taken me to where I am today. And then the pendulum swings to where I was doing a lot on my own. I thought, you know what? I can learn a lot from a big company. And that's when I went to Viasat and I learned so much. And then it just evolving that coming to AWS. Like, how do we scale things on, on a world stage? Startups talk about scale. Amazon has millions of people working for it, and we're all over the world. And, and that's a great opportunity to learn large-scale processes. I do think one of the most enduring legacies of the Fang companies may be this ability to structure very, very large organizations with small, highly autonomous, high agency startup-like groups within them. It's it's clearly incredibly satisfying for the folks who, who find that niche. It is. And, and the two pizza team thing is very real. There are absolutely pockets of incredible entrepreneurship within big companies. And I talk a lot about balance. For me, in, in whatever the Fang company or the big company that you're in, it's t- you have to find that balance of how do we empower those teams to be entrepreneurial and innovative and to take risks and for us to be okay with that we give them the top cover but also how do you balance that with the fact that you don't really want a dozen teams at your company doing the same thing and competing with each other like they have to at some level know what's going on with the other teams there has to be some sort of connective tissue and you have to be able to capture the value and not have a lot of deadweight loss of so many teams within that company trying the same thing over and over. Yeah, we're better at planetary scale computing than we are at planetary scale collaboration, but that's because collaboration is really hard. <laughs> it, it is, yes. Michael, if you had one do-over, what might you do differently? I really want to give you a specific, like a very specific answer to this. There are a few that jump 
that comes screaming to mind, but I can't because it has to do with the time that I worked in the government. And, and I hate that answer. And you can just you could tell me, but then you'd have to kill me. Well, and that's just not something that scales. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's better just to not say it. <laughs> but I would say every mistake that I've had in my career has led me to where I am now. There are a few that I would take back or I would adjust. I think a lot of that, most of them have to do with work-life balance and either over-indexing, you know, over-indexing too much on focusing on work, which is easy to do when you're overseas and heads down on a, on a really intense project um, and you ignore everything else in your life. And so I've, I've learned to calibrate, I think, a lot more effectively on that. But in terms of a tactical choice that I would do over, I, I, I just can't pick anything because I don't know which one of those threads I would pull that would lead me to someplace that's, that's different from where I am today. And I'm really happy where I am. I'm really glad. How would you distill all of this experience into two or three lessons for our listeners? Oh, two or three. Hmm. I have a lot more than that. So let me try to think of the, the highlights. The most important thing to me, something that I learned from my dad was just to try not to worry so much about everything. I'm a big believer that nothing is a big deal until you make it a big deal. And I always ask myself, when I find myself stressing out about something, I check in and ask myself, will this really matter a year from now? And if it doesn't, then I, I just stop worrying because there's not a lot of utility that comes from that. It's not easy for everyone, but it's something that I aspire to. And my dad, he's, he's a heart surgeon, and he had a phrase that he learned from his mentor, all bleeding stops eventually. So, so whether you solve the problem or, or it resolves itself, it's going to be over. So just focus on working the problem and, and try to maintain your mental health along the way. That's some good perspective there. Another one that I, it's really important to me is, is to be authentic. And again, I, I mentioned that in my previous career and today, it's all about building trust-based relationships. And I really admire leaders who are authentic. And I find that that inspires the most trust. And that those are the folks that I want to follow. It's pretty easy to pick up when you're faking it. And sometimes it's not easy to be authentic, but it's something that I, that I really aspire to. I have two more. So you asked for two or three. I'm going to give you four. Four is good. <laughs> my next one is to be nice to everyone. And it's, again, something that my dad taught me. He was, as a, as a surgeon walking around the hospital, I used to follow him around as a kid. And... I was always really struck by the fact that he treated every single person in the hospital equally, whether it was the administrator or the other surgeons or the nurses or the janitor. There wasn't a single change in the inflection of his voice or the way that he spoke to people. And, you know, it's the age old advice of you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. I try to, to make friends with everyone, be friends with everyone. And then the, the government version for me is always be recruiting, right? Like, like it's good to have people on my side, even if I don't necessarily, again, believe in their political beliefs or align with them, or we might not get along. It doesn't cost me anything to be nice to them and treat them with respect. Okay. And then the last one I promise is I always try to learn something from everyone. This one's about staying humble and I'm sure, and I hope that you've heard this a hundred times on your podcast I have something to learn from everyone 
And the minute I catch myself thinking that I don't, I really need to, to change something and to like recalibrate in the conversation. Because even if I'm the one in front of a classroom teaching, I have lots to learn from the students. And so that's how I approach every relationship and every conversation. Yeah, it ties back to your dad's respect for the janitor. The value of any given person is infinite and the differences between us are minuscule compared to that. And keeping that at the center of your practice keeps everything calibrated, I think. Oh my gosh. And especially folks that have nothing to do with my background or who are totally foreign to me, like in any sense of the word, that's where I lean in the most. I don't understand anything about where you're from or what you do or or why you think the way you do. So I really need to open my mind and learn from you because that's going to make me a better person. It's going to make me better at my job and at everything that I do. And until we can do that, we are not going to crack planetary scale collaboration. (laughs) Absolutely. Michael, how do you avoid burnout? Do you avoid burnout? I have historically had a propensity to burnout. It's something that I've learned a lot from because I am one of the lessons that I didn't say was I always work hard and I believe in in putting the most into everything that I do and that can lead to over indexing and burning out and so I've fortunately come to a place where I stop work when I need to period and I realize that the world won't stop when I stop work and that's okay and what that allows me to do is to save those hair on fire moments for when there are real emergencies and deal with them appropriately but if it's five o'clock and I've generally done what I needed to do and I can save something for tomorrow, like no one's going to die if I don't finish it tonight, I'll stop. Because guess what? My kids want to play with me. I go spend time with my wife. I go you know, read a book and do things that, that help me stay sane. So I stop when I need to. And I don't work unless you know, I don't I don't do the overtime unless you really need to do the overtime. That was a big one for me, learning that my team needs a a leader who has emotional resources that haven't been depleted. Yes, that's so true. And I think whether it's as a leader or in a family, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be doing the best you can for your team. And I put my family first. I'm also a believer that work won't be there for you after you retire. So you really have to prioritize the family and your loved ones and the people that are around you, your friends because that's what's going to be with you for the rest of your life. You want your kids to want to put you in the nice nursing home. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, the irony is, by the way, I grew up and my dad was such a great dad, but he he was gone a lot because he was always operating. And and the nurses would ask me, do you want to be a surgeon when you grow up like your dad? And I said, I can't believe I said this. I feel so bad now. I said this right in front of him. I said, no, because I want a job where I can be around for my kids a lot. Oh, yeah. And um your doctor, you work on the weekends, it's all day, every day. And, you know, jokes on me. The irony is I then went and picked a career where I was not only gone all day, but like out of the country in a war zone. That's again, something I've had to pull way back from and, and realize what is important in my life and where do I want to be directionally? What is the best way for our listeners to connect with you or follow your work? I'm on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find me. And I, love to connect with new folks on there. I, I have great conversations with people that reach out to me and I believe in paying it forward. And so I love to have conversations with folks that you know are starting companies or starting funds or want to transition into tech. So feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. And then I am on Twitter at Mike Moreno SD, like San Diego. 
for the next five years, everything in the tech industry goes exactly the way you want it to. You're the god emperor. What you say goes. What does the world look like in five years? Oh, my gosh. That's a serious nuance on that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I, w I could control everything in the future. I spent so much time with startups and a lot of time with founders. No matter what, I want to continue to help founders for the rest of my life. And I'm, and I'm really excited about space and national security, but also other areas of deep tech as well. Things like climate tech, digital health, spatial computing, cybersecurity. These are all technologies, artificial intelligence, crypto. They're all technologies that I think that we can be investing in and cultivating for the betterment of humankind. I also think they can go horribly awry. So in my perfect utopian future, I'm making more direct investments in startups in all of these areas, and I'm helping to align them with the interests of not only the U.S., which I've done professionally, but for all humankind, as cheesy as that sounds. I, I believe that we're citizens of, of the earth and that we should be harnessing the, these resources and these technologies for good. Vote for Michael for president of the Federation. <laughs> Are you a Star Trek fan? Oh, God, yes. So the first episode of The Next Generation is called Encounter at Farpoint. And I think about this all the time because Farpoint Station... Picard and the crew of the Enterprise is, in their first episode ever, literally put on trial for all of humanity. And they have to speak for humanity and show that, hey, we're actually a good species. And we have all these incredible capabilities and technologies. And, and Q, the alien that's putting them on trial, is saying, you've just done horribly. Look at your past. Look at your history as a species. And the crew of, of the Enterprise is saying, we're, we've turned a corner and we're using this force for good and watch us for the next seven seasons <laughs> and see how the, how we use those, those technologies. It's such a classic episode and next gen was so formative for me as I was growing up, but I just want to shout out to discovery, which is the star Trek of my heart, <laughs> all of these space babies and every color of the rainbow. They're completely adorable. What I love about all of those series and science fiction in general is that you can draw a straight line from the from the big the think big crazy ideas that those writers came up with to technologies that are actually happening today and that's the really exciting thing about working in this area is that you get to see those ideas come to life and those science fiction in general is what inspires so many of us to do this very concrete example i've i've just been listening to china prescott's amazing book, The Disordered Cosmos, about being an astrophysicist who's also a black woman from East LA. Wow. And she talks a lot about how directly she was inspired by, by the examples and the representation of Star Trek. Absolutely. What else should I have asked you? Well, the first question that you asked me was about my road from policy advisor to where I am today. Uh, you didn't ask me about before that. So, so that story starts at college and my first job out of college. But I feel like a lot of the foundational stuff that drove me came from before that. So maybe the question would be, what was your pathway before you became a policy advisor that led you to where you are today? I love that question. What was your pathway before you became a policy advisor that led you to where you are today? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are a couple of big things that happened when I was a kid. One in seventh grade, 
I landed in Russia on about the same day as Yeltsin dissolved the parliament and there was a coup. And so as a kid, I was there on the streets of the right outside the Moscow Aerostar Hotel watching tanks roll down the street and, you know, literally ducking into train track little areas to dodge the snipers that were on the roofs. And it was this crazy formative experience that really, I think, if I look back, led me to where I ended up after graduation, after college, um, to work in. Yeah, that'll make you think about nation building. Yeah. And so there was that. I talked about founding some startups. The first real startup I had was that I played in a band in high school, which is like this little mini business. I know that's silly, but it was, you know, such a formative experience being on stage, learning about presence and then running a business, recording, selling, selling merchandise, having a marketing strategy. So to any super young entrepreneurs or, you know, kids out there who want to get a start, I think starting a band is a great way to go. I also started a t-shirt and graphic design company in college called Royalty Clothing. We we sold a bunch of different designs, put stuff in stores on consignment. And then we started also an art and politics magazine. So it was all about the intersection of art and politics, and it was called High Resolution, which I think is a pretty cool name. I'm, I'm still very proud of that. Well, I'm very glad to have welcomed you as the second rock star we've had on the show. Michael, (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you so much and best luck with the next iteration of the AWS Space Accelerator. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful and really happy to be here with you. This has been Alchemist X Innovators Inside. You can find the transcript of this conversation plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on our blog. And stay connected by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you found the podcast valuable, feel free to share or tell your colleagues. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments, feedback, suggestions for future guests, or just say hi by emailing us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com. 